Well, good morning. Uh, it is good to be with you again. Um, it's been a pleasure uh, to uh, preach here several times in the past. This is the first time that I get to preach uh, with Pastor Noah and his family here, so that's a particular joy. Uh, only makes me slightly more nervous. Um, maybe just in case I should say it's, it's been a real pleasure uh, to be here preaching to you for possibly the last time. Um, no. Um, and I do want to bring you greetings from Christ the King um, uh, in Newton. Uh, still feels kind of strange to say that. Uh, I was at Christ King Cambridge for many years um, and have recently transitioned into this new role leading the Optech Collaborative, but also uh, pastoring at Christ the King in, in Newton. So I want to bring you uh, greetings uh, from them. Let's see, give me one second here. I need to get this thing set up so it's not going to go off in the middle. Okay, um, the passage that we are going to look at this morning is going to be from the very beginning of the book of Job. Um, I have to admit, I, without the, the, the written uh, order of service here, uh, I feel a little, bit, a little bit lost, so forgive me if I do things differently than you're, than you're used to. Um, can I ask you to please stand? Now here, as I read from the first 12 chapters, so chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 of the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord, and he said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand. And touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. 
Please join me in prayer as we come to this passage. Father in heaven, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I did not coordinate with uh, Tim as to which psalm uh, to read for uh, uh, to, to call us into worship this morning, but that was perfect, uh, Psalm 62, because what I want to focus on this morning in this passage um, is actually uh, something connected to the very end of Psalm 62. The last couple of verses of Psalm 62 say this, um, and here I'm, I'm reading from the ESV because that's what I've got copied into my notes. Uh, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. That psalm has meant a lot to me um, throughout my life. Um, The man that I am now co-pastoring with in Newton, he and I met uh, almost 20 years ago. He was the um, uh, college pastor from our church at Harvard when I first started worshiping in Cambridge. And he used to lead our prayer meeting. And we would almost always read that psalm. Uh, as, as part of our, of our Tuesday morning prayer. And I remember him saying frequently, and I've said frequently in the years since then, that a lot of our problems derive from our difficulty in believing these verses. It says, power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And a lot of our problems derive from the fact that we struggle to believe one or the other of those things. Um, either that God is powerful, that he actually can help us, that he can save us, um, that he can enter into the dark nights of our soul and bring light, or that with him is steadfast love, that he cares, that he wants to help us. We might believe that he's powerful, but, but does he care? Does he love us? Um, what I want to look at uh, in this passage this morning Uh, I'm really going to focus really just in in one place, which is this conversation that takes place between God and Satan. And I want us to see, on the one hand, how Satan, in what he says, is attacking exactly at this point. Uh, it, It is a struggle of cosmic proportions that's taking place. Uh, for us to believe this song, that Satan uh, is attacking right there. And then I simply want us to ask, how do we respond to that attack? How do we defend against it? How do we know that, in fact, God is a God who is full of power and full of steadfast love? So let's take a look at this. Um, We read the first 12 verses of of the book of Job. the book of Job uh, has been regarded as one of the great works of literature in all time across, across all cultures. Um, if you don't know what it's about, let me just give you just the, the briefest sketch. So you heard um, this, this first verse. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Isn't that a great beginning? That just makes you want to keep reading, right? Um, and we hear that this man is blameless and upright. And not only that, he's also very wealthy. Um, and then we hear about this conversation that takes place between God and Satan, and we hear that God permits Satan to go and strike 
uh, all that Job has. And then there's actually a second round of this conversation in chapter 2 um, where God permits Satan to strike against Job's health. Um, Job loses everything that he has. Um, he loses all of his possessions. Uh, he loses his family. There's just this series of significantly more than unfortunate events that take from him all that he has and his whole family and eventually his health. And he's left sitting in the dust, uh, covered in sores, um, with his wife encouraging him to just curse God and die. Um, the rest of the book, um, most of it, uh, is these series of conversations between Job and three friends who show up. Actually, four. Um, they've been referred to as miserable comforters because they're really no help uh, to him whatsoever. Um, Job maintains throughout the book that he's innocent. He doesn't deserve what's happening to him. Um, he never curses God. He gets awfully close. He demands an audience before God. He demands to, to, to be in God's presence and to ask what is going on. One of the friends keeps telling Job, listen, you must have done something. Um, God is a God of justice, so you must have sinned in some way. Another friend says, Job, you're crazy to ask for this audience. You're just a creature. Who are you to ask to stand in the presence of your creator? Um, this goes on for most of the book um, until at the end, Job gets what he wants because God shows up. And when he shows up, he doesn't provide an explanation. He doesn't tell Job about this conversation that took place with Satan. Job never hears about that. He never knows that that's what was going on. God simply presents himself to Job as his creator. And there's both a challenge to it, as he says, Job, if you think you have questions for me, actually, I've got some questions for you. But at the same time, there's a deep comfort that I'll come back to in the fact that he shows up uh, and, and speaks to Job. And that's how the book ends. Um, at the end, we read that Job is restored. Um, his health is restored. His wealth is restored. He has more children. Now, of course, he doesn't get back the children that he lost. And so it's not like things are simply put back the way they were. And that's how the book ends. People have puzzled over this book for centuries. They've wondered, what in the world is this about? Is this a meditation on why we suffer? Is this a meditation on where God is in the midst of suffering? It's kept us going and going and, and, and thinking about this. Um, there's some great modern adaptations uh, of, of this story. Um, just a couple of films. Uh, the Coen brothers have made a movie called A Serious Man. Um, Terrence Malick, great filmmaker, made a, a, a movie called The Tree of Life. Neither one offers any more of an answer to the question than the book of Job um, does. But people have been thinking about this and thinking about this. Um, again, today, my focus is not to try to answer this question of why do we suffer. Um, as much as it is simply to look at this attack um, that, that, that Satan makes and ask, how do we answer that attack? How do we defend 
against an attack on God's character that says he's not really powerful and not really loving. The scene shifts from the beginning of the book. It shifts very abruptly, doesn't it? Um, The first six verses are focused on Job and who he is. Um, People have said, in some ways, Job is sort of an everyman, right? He could be be anybody. Um, There are no distinguishing marks to tell us exactly when or where this was written. Scholars think this is one of the oldest books uh, in the Bible, but we really don't know when or where this is taking place, Um, except it doesn't seem to be anywhere in the promised land, wherever Uz actually is. But in another sense, Job is not every man, because the book presents Job as a really excellent human being, Um, not just in the sense that he's wealthy and, and prominent, it describes him as the greatest of all the people in the East. But it says he's blameless, and he's upright. And our our sort of cynical, jaded, modern minds read that, and we think, oh, come on. You know, nobody's really blameless. Nobody's nobody's really perfect. We want to kind of shade Job down uh, a a couple notches. But this this isn't that kind of literature. This is not a modern modern work where you're supposed to be cynical. Where the narrator tells you that he's blameless and he's upright, you can take that at face value. Um, that Job really is a good man, uh, a righteous man. Uh, not sinless, but good. And in some ways, that makes him even more of an everyman in the sense that what that means is if this can happen to Job, if this loss, this suffering that's coming, if that can happen to Job, then it can happen to anybody. When you read that Job is wealthy and that he has a large family, and of course you know what's coming, there's a bit of a tense invitation. We're we're, we're drawn towards realizing that if Job could lose all that he has and all that's most dear to him, then so could any of us. Um... When we see Job, we realize that in everything that we have, we're exposed. But in some ways, the more that we have, the more we have to lose. Um, that's where the story takes us, right? That's, that's, how, that's how we're drawn in, uh, in into this story. Um, and again, I think that's exactly where Satan is attacking. I think that's exactly where Satan wants us to to sit and to worry uh, and to feel that sense of exposure. Uh, So let's take a look. This is what I really want to dig into. Let's take a look at this conversation. Like I said, the scene shifts very suddenly. Suddenly, you know, it's like if you imagine the movie, it zooms way, way out, right, from this earthly scene of this man uh, who's, who's the greatest man in the East, blameless, upright. Um, and suddenly we're in heaven. It says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present, came to present themselves before the Lord, uh, and Satan also came among them. Um, these 
sons of God. We don't know exactly who they are, uh, but they seem to be celestial beings. At the very end of Job, when God shows up, I said before that when God shows up, he says, I've got some questions for you. And the first of those questions is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Um, When the morning stars sang for joy and all the sons of God rejoiced, right? So that seems to be who the sons of God are, right? They've been there for all of it. Um, Job wasn't there for creation, but these sons of God were also there. But among them is this one character. Um, And if, if, if the sons of God have continued in their rejoicing and in their praise, there's this one character who's bringing in a note of discord. Um, I'm guessing that there are some Lord of the Rings fans uh, here. And then, of course, if you're, if you're a real Tolkien fan, you go back even further and you read the Silmarillion, right? And there's this great scene at the beginning of the Silmarillion. So the Silmarillion like, goes all the way back to the beginning of Tolkien's um, mythology, right? This uh, Middle Earth that he's, that he's made. And actually gives a creation scene. And it's beautiful. Because it's depicted in terms of music. It's depicted as these sons of God, these not quite the God, but divine beings singing creation into existence. And it's beautiful and it's harmonious, except that there's this one named Melkor, because they always have to have a name like Melkor, um, who decides uh, to sing a note of dissonance and discord and to try to disrupt the harmony. And it's beautiful what it says as, as, he, as he tries to do this. It describes his, his dissonance. He says, it, it, or, or the, the Silmarillion says, it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. So that somehow the discord is woven in uh, and becomes part of the beauty. Well, here, instead of Melkor, we have Satan. Um, and in being called Satan, by the way, um, this may be the same being that we see tempting Jesus in the wilderness, um, who's, who's referred to as Satan, the one that, that the New Testament warns us about that's prowling about like a lion. It's, it's, it's actually reasonable. It's, it's likely to think this is the same one. Um, but here he's actually referred to as the Satan. Um, so the focus is less on who he is than on what he does. Because the Satan, it means the challenger. It means the adversary. It means the accuser. Um, he's here to cause trouble. He's here to disrupt the praise of the other sons of God. Um, we know that he's one who has access to this throne room, something that Job himself does not have. Right? Something that Job will be asking for throughout the book. Um, but Satan's, Satan's got that. Um, the Satan is actually here um, before, before God. Now, what is it that he says? The first thing that I want us to notice, the very first thing that I want us to notice, is the difference between where God's attention is in this scene and where Satan's attention is. You might have seen a, 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 a movie um, that depicts in some way, you know, the spiritual world, right? Angels and demons, um, or, uh, uh, you know, maybe the movie Ghost. That's kind of dating myself. 
Maybe still watch Ghost? Probably not. Um, usually in these movies where there's some kind of demonic forces, if, if Satan is actually a figure, um, usually it's, it's the demons and it's Satan that have their attention trained specifically on human beings. Like they are there to torment you, right? And they are focused specifically on you. And, and God, if he's there at all, is usually some sort of distant, aloof force that hopefully is going to show up by the end of the movie and, and set things right. And what I want you to see here is how in this scene, it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. Um, God says to Satan, where have you been, right? Where have you come from? And Satan gives this really generic, vague response. He says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Just kind of here and there, not doing much of anything in particular. It's God who immediately brings up Job. It's God who immediately brings up this person. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Um, have you considered this one um, who is blameless and upright? One who fears God and shuns evil. One, one thing uh, that's interesting about, about that, that description, um, you know what God is saying about Job when he says that he fears God and he shuns evil? He's saying that Job has wisdom. Um, Job is actually a part of the wisdom literature. And surely it's the most perplexing book out of the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and some of the Psalms, right? Um, the very central chapter of, 28 of, of, of Job, chapter 28, is this extended meditation on how hard it is to find wisdom. It says, you know, we can dig in the earth for gold and silver. We know how to do that. But wisdom, how do you find that? Uh, it goes through all these different candidate places that you could find wisdom. You know, high in a mountain, no. Deep in the earth, no. Uh, in heaven or hell, like, how do, you, how do you find it? And it simply says, God knows the way to it. And its conclusion at the end is simply this. Um, is simply that, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And that's exactly how God has just described Job. Have you considered my servant Job, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and who shuns evil? who turns away from it. Um, Job is a man with wisdom, and God has taken notice of this. And it's only when God brings this up, it's only when God directs Satan's attention towards Job that Satan says, has anything to say about him. Um, and he immediately, his tone turns towards accuse, accusing, right? He, he, he begins to do what his name says that he does. He begins to accuse. But the accusations aren't directed primarily at Job. Um, this is something important for us to know about Satan, uh, about the devil, um, about the spiritual world, which is arrayed against God and his purposes, is that his accusations, first and foremost, are directed at God. What he wants more than anything else in the world is to get us to doubt God's love for us, God's character. He doesn't really care about you. He's not like God in that regard. He, he, he really doesn't care what happens to you as long as he can get you doubting God's character. Um, here's what he says. 
He says, does, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. Here's what Satan is saying. He's saying, sure, Job is blameless and upright. Sure, he fears you. But that's just because you've been so good to him. That's just because you've given him so much. But I know what you're really like. This is the heart of the accusation. He's pointing his finger in God's face and saying, I know what you're really like. You are a transactional God. You are a God who will take care of people when they obey you. Just watch what happens if you take the wealth away. Just watch what happens if you strike his wealth, his family, his health. Watch him turn on you immediately. He doesn't love you. He doesn't fear you. He's only in this for the money. He's only in this for the blessings. That's the accusation. Much of the book of Job is going to be asking the question, is that true or not? Is that really what God is like? Will Job's faith survive losing everything that he, that he has? Again, that, that question isn't where we are this morning, but that's kind of where the rest of the book goes. You know, what this reminds me of, if you think about a lot of Jesus' parables in the New Testament. Very frequently, Jesus will tell a parable and there'll be some um, figure in the story you know, who's clearly meant to represent God in some way, except that the character of this person is, is harsh and is hard. So you think about there's, there's that one parable about the woman who's going to a judge for justice and she can't get it. She can't even get his attention. And finally, finally, she's able to get, you know, she's so persistent that she finally gets the attention and gets justice, just, just so she'll go away, right? Um, or you think about the parable of the, the talents, where a man gives different amounts of money to three of his servants and goes away on a trip and comes back and says, all right, let's see what you did with it. And two have invested well and they're praised for that, but one just went and hid the money. And the man says, well, why didn't you at least put the money in a bank? So it would have earned interest. And he says, because I knew you were a hard man. Um, I knew that you're harsh. Part of the point of these parables, when Jesus tells these, is, is for him to say, listen, if you know how to relate to people who are like this, imagine what it's like to relate to your Father in heaven, who's not like this judge who's ignoring justice, who's not a hard master, who's gracious, who knows how to give good gifts to his children. But the other point of these parables is to call us out on how quick we are to believe that God is like that, how, how susceptible we are to these accusations that, that Satan is leveling against God and that he wants to take root in our hearts. The accusation that God is hard and harsh, that he's stingy, that he's holding out on us. You know, if you think back to the very beginning 
uh, of, of the Bible. What was it that Satan got Adam and Eve to believe? Remember, he called attention. They're, they're, they're in the garden, right? They're surrounded by everything that they need. God has given them absolutely everything, but, but Satan draws their attention to the one thing that he hasn't given them, you know, which is this one tree. And it gets them wondering why. Why is God holding out on you? And, and we read that Eve saw that the fruit uh, was to be, to be desired for making one wise. It was a delight to the eyes and to be desired for making one wise. And so she took it uh, and, and she ate it. What Satan was able to get her to do uh, and her husband, who was right there and didn't put a stop to this and just simply ate right along with Eve, what he got them to do was in their hearts, he got them to begin wondering, does God really love us? Will he really care for us? And I think we know that that's where their heart went, that that's where their hearts went, because when God shows up, there's this heartbreaking moment where they're hiding from him. And he's saying, where are you? And when he finally speaks to them, remember what it, what it is that, that, that Adam says? He says, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And I never really thought about what that really meant. I mean, on the one hand, naked simply in the sense that they weren't wearing clothing. Okay. But I think there's something deeper there. I think what Adam is saying, I was afraid because I was exposed. I was afraid because I was alone. I was afraid because deep in my heart, I began to wonder if anyone was really going to care for me. And so Adam and Eve did what is natural to fall in human nature. When we're convinced that no one is going to take care of us, when we're convinced that we're alone and exposed and abandoned, we start finding ways to take care of ourselves. We reach out our hands to take for ourselves what we think will satisfy, what will, care, what, what will take care of us, whether that's money, um, whether that's a relationship, um, whether that's power or sex. And, and each of these things, I mean, be careful to say, money and, and, and power and sex, uh, work, status, you know, all of these things, these are not bad things. These are good things. These are things that God made. These are, these are gifts that he's given to us. And they're really good gifts as long as we receive them as gifts and see them pointing beyond themselves to the one who gave them to us. But they make terrible gods. When we start to think that they will satisfy us and that we have to reach out and take them for ourselves because we have no father. We have no one really to care for us. Um, when we start to agree with what's Satan here, we know what God's really like. He's stingy. He's hard. He won't take care of us. Um, that's when we start to get ourselves into trouble. I have two questions to ask, and then, and then I want us to, 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 to see, um, I want us to talk about how we can answer these. 
I have two questions to ask. One is, when you look at Job, when you see that he's exposed and you're able to identify with him, you're able to say, you know what, in what I have, I am exposed to loss. Um, or you might actually be suffering loss. In the last 18 months, we have been collectively suffering loss. Um, and I know that that's just been layered on top of the individual pains and losses um, that have hit all of our lives. What do you do with that? And where do you go? Are you able to go in your exposure or in the midst of loss itself? Are you able to go to your father? Are you able to go to God with that loss and with that exposure? Or does it send you in the opposite direction? Do you find yourself identifying with what Adam said? I'm afraid because I'm naked. And so I have to hide. I have to cover myself somehow. I have to protect myself somehow before I can really be in God's presence. Um, at the end of this passage, Satan challenges God to stretch out his hand against Job. And he won't do it, right? Like, he himself is not going to stretch out his hand. But he does permit. He does allow um, Satan. Um, that does, by the way, tell us one thing about the book of Job, which is that the book of Job will have none of this idea that the reason that there's suffering in the world is because God's out of control. Um, the picture that we get here in the book of Job is a God who is fully in control, right? And, and Satan can only act because God lets him do it. So we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're not let off the hook on, on this problem of, of suffering with the idea that God just can't do anything about suffering um, in the world. Um, he is a God full of power. But I think the harder question for us is, is he a God full of love? Is he a God who loves us? How do we know? How can we trust him? How could we answer that? How, how could we take our exposure and our loss and go to him? expecting him to be a loving father. Um, the amazing thing about the book of Job, like what absolutely blows me away, is that at the end of the book, when God shows up and doesn't answer Job's questions uh, and asks him a bunch of questions and just presents himself as, as Job's creator. And again, there is, there is comfort in that. There is comfort in the fact that God speaks to Job in the second person. Um, and addresses him directly. But it's amazing to me that that moves Job to repentance. That Job actually says, you know what? All this time I have been speaking of what I didn't understand, what I didn't know, and now I, I cover my mouth. Um, and he repents. And what's amazing to me is that he does that simply meeting God as his creator. My friends, we have met God as so much more than that. Because we know him not only as our creator, but also as our redeemer, uh, as our savior. Um, think about 
maybe the next time that we know that there's a conversation between God and Satan in the Bible. Um, Think about early in the book of Matthew, uh, as God, this time in the flesh, uh, as Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, um, is sent out into the wilderness. And Satan shows up. And he really puts before him exactly the same temptation that he put before Adam and Eve. Um, That happened in the garden, full of abundance, where they had absolutely everything. This time Jesus is actually in the wilderness, right? He's really hungry. He's really thirsty. And Satan comes at him and simply says, you know, if you're really the son of God, you could just turn these stones into bread. Um, You could just call for angels to care for you, and they'd come running. Um, You could have all the power in the world. Take it. Cover yourself. Protect yourself. But Jesus, where the first Adam failed, surrounded by plenty in the garden, Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. He refuses to depend on anything but on his heavenly Father. He does what Psalm 78 tells us that we all need to do. He sets his hope on God. He doesn't forget the works of God. He keeps his commandments. And that, and that obedience, this is what we get to see, that obedience to his Father, that leads him all the way to the cross. Where ultimately, Jesus is the one who is exposed. Jesus is the one who really is stripped naked. Um, Jesus is the one who actually loses what Job never loses and what you and I never will. He actually loses the presence of his father. And this is where our theology just kind of breaks, right? I mean, this is God in the flesh suffering the consequences for our sin, suffering the wrath of God without there being a rift in the Trinity. Um, without there being any hint of um, what, what, what some critical scholars have, have talked about as, as divine child abuse. Because, because when we see Jesus on the cross for us, what we're seeing um, is not one person of the Trinity against the other. We're seeing the shared, unanimous, sacrificial love of God for humanity. Um, This is Jesus continuing to be faithful to the will of his Father by the power of the Spirit for us, in our place. Um, That is how we know. This is what tells us that this God is not only full of power, uh, but is full of love. This is the one thing that I think Satan just couldn't conceive of. Um, as he was accusing God and saying, I know what you're really like. He couldn't conceive of a God who is a creator of infinite generosity, completely limitless in his capacity to give and to create and to redeem, to bring something out of nothing, to bring life out of death. He thought that God was like him. Um, 
At the beginning, I mentioned that I think, I think most of our problems come from our difficulty in believing uh, Psalm 62, that God is, a power of, uh, God is a God of power and of steadfast love. Um, I had a friend one time give me another idea about where most of our problems come from. Let me close with, with, with this. Um, my friend Manny um, was a man that I trained to be an elder over at, at Christ the King. Um, Manny was about 70 years old. He'd grown up in Roxbury. Um, he had dropped out of high school, uh, no college education. Um, and so when it came to being trained as an elder in the PCA, um, you know, where you got to like read the Westminster Confession of Faith and interact with it, um, he was nervous. He was nervous about all of that. Um, but I remember in his ordination exam, you know, he was, he was, he was sweating bullets. There was no question that this guy was, was an elder. Uh, his gifts were obvious. Um, but I remember he was, he was really, really nervous. We were, we were asking him about, uh, we were examining him on his knowledge of the Bible, and his pastor um, at our congregation in Jamaica Plain turned to him and said, Manny, why don't you just tell us about what you've been learning in the book of Job? Because that's what Manny had been reading. And Manny got this big smile on his face, and he looked at me, and he said, all of my problems come from forgetting that God's not like me. I said, what do you mean by that, Manny? He said, all of my problems come from forgetting that God is holy. He's not like me. See, when I get angry at somebody, I want to take vengeance on them. I want them to suffer. And so when I'm suffering... I think, well, that must mean that God is angry at me. But I forget. God's not like me. God is holy. When I'm suffering, it doesn't mean that God is angry at me. It doesn't mean that he's turned away from me. He's with me. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God who is full of power and of steadfast love. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, it's, um, it's a challenge for us uh, even to believe that there are spiritual forces arrayed against you and against us. We live in a world that wants to bracket that out uh, and say that really only what we can see, what we can perceive, what we can measure is real. Father, we thank you for this part of your word that gives us a glimpse uh, into this reality beyond and behind our own. But much more than that, we are thankful that your word reminds us that at the heart of that reality uh, is a God uh, who is our creator and our redeemer, um, a God who is full of power and steadfast love. Lord, I pray uh, for each of us um, in the days ahead. Uh, that these truths would be more real, that they would sink in, that they would shape our character, um, that they would free us to love you and to love our neighbor, uh, as your word has told us to. Um, help us to love you with all our heart, uh, all our mind, all our soul, and our strength. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in the name of your good son, Jesus Christ. Amen.